Germany's top secret mission is sabotage. James Bond finds himself captured by the enemy, abandoned by MI6 and stripped of his 007 license. Determined to get revenge, Bond goes head-to-head with a sultry spy, a frosty agent, and a shadowy billionaire whose business is diamonds but whose secret's a diabolical weapon that could bring the world to its knees. Making its premiere in London, that's the official DVD synopsis, can you believe it? <laughs> Making its premiere in London on the 18th of November 2002 before opening in the UK two days later on the 20th and a further two days later in the USA on the 22nd. Die Another Day is the 20th James Bond film and cost $142 million to make and brought in $456 at the US box office, at the worldwide box office. Starring Pierce Brosnan, directed by Lee Tamahori, I'm sure we'll talk about him in a minute. The vital statistics are Conquest 2, Martinis 2, Kills 31, Bond James Bonds 1. Back in 2002, Variety said... James Bond celebrates his 40th birthday on the big screen in Die Another Day, a mid-range series entry that sports some tasty scenes, mostly in the first half, but also pushes 007 into CGI-driven quasi-sci-fi territory that feels like a betrayal of what the franchise has always been about. I'm your host, James Page, from MI6HQ.com and MI6 Confidential Magazine, and this week I am joined by Bill Koenig, Ben Enslinger, and Sean Longmore. Would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Hello, I'm Bill Koenig with the Spy Command blog. Hello, I'm Ben Esslinger, and I uh, am a video editor for television, but I also run a rather silly podcast about spy movies called Central Intelligence Cinema. And hello, I'm Sean Longmore, and I'm a graphic designer and artist, and I sometimes do pretty James Bond pictures as well. Kind of pretty James always, Bond pictures. They're always pretty James Bond pictures. Oh, thank you. All right, so... Uh, we kick off with the one with how would you describe this film to a non-fan if you had to put something on the poster what would it be if you closed your eyes what's the thing you see or hear when you think die another day it's the one with the dodgy cgi (laughs) (laughs) um, since golden eye eon had been gradually amping up its cgi but it was mostly targeted with this movie, it was like in your face right away with the CGI bullet in the gun barrel and other examples. But probably the most over the top was the parasurfing sequence, which looked like a video game with insert shots of Pierce Brosnan. And I'll, I'll give Pierce credit. He was really working those insert shots, but it kind of, well, well, I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else want to discuss that or uh, throw their uh, own? Uh, do, do, do I want to go into that conversation now? Um, I, 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 I want to play devil's. Of, I, I want to play devil's advocate a little bit on the CGI because I kind of feel bad for the CGI company that the VFX company they hired because they spent all their time getting the waves to look nice. Yes, and then there's like a behind the scenes featurette I think that came out at the time. It might not be around too much anymore. Where the head artist is like. Oh, yeah, and then we forgot we had to put James Bond in it, and we only had like two days left or something. <laughs> no doubt. No, I'm sure there was like, I'm sure something like that was the case. But, you know, you know the water looks great. Th- there, was a, there was a fan theory at the time that after the movie came out in theaters, well, they'll fix it for the DVD release. Well, no, they didn't. No, oh. that money went to take Dolly's braces off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I think I'm on the same page as you here, James. Um, in the, the, I think the CGI itself gets more bad rap than it deserves, um, simply because at the time the CGI wasn't terrible, especially when compared to a lot of other films from 2002. The issue is it's the shot where they try and blend real footage with CGI. Mm. So the physic, the actual computer generated stuff, doesn't look horrendous for 2002 but it's just stuff like the the blue screen shots of brosnan then put into that which then make it very obvious that it's fake or the model shot with the satellite where the back end is a right. quite a nice model but then the front end is an awful sort of inflating cgi thing um so i think it's just it's that that kind of makes it worse than it actually is well, well. Before that, though, there was also uh, Halle Berry Jinx supposedly diving off the cliff. That oh, yeah, was pretty well, that, that's, obvious. That's, yeah. that's that to me is the worst shot. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think that's that's the, still the same thing, though, is it's incorporating real life footage with yeah. computer generated, and that's sort of the hurdle that I actually still don't think we're over yet, even now, because when you watch no. some of those Marvel movies, that you get the same problem with green screen and stuff. Yeah, um, I, I I do suspect it was a case where the CGI companies, the contractors, weren't given enough time, you know, to to smooth things out. And as a friend of mine, a late friend of mine, said at the time. Oh, CGI is hard. And it's right. like, yes, it is hard. And that's was it, was it I, Buzz Aldrin that turned to Armstrong and said, You do realize we're sitting on a rocket built by the lowest bidder. Um, <laughs> you gotta remember that in the early days of CGI, they would have gone to the VFX house that bid the least. Sure. With oh, the yeah. oh yeah, we can do that in six weeks, no problem. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Because it was such a new area of VFX that but but also it should be noted that Lee Tom Horry, the director, was a big enthusiast mm-hmm. because there are some of these behind the scenes things that showed up on the DVDs where he said like you know like CGI is going to like replace practical stunt effects. Oh, he was twenty years early. <laughs> yeah, a little early. Yes, I, I, I'm going to say he's not he's not wrong, is he? Look at um, Paloma's legs in No Time to Die. Like, they That's were CGI right. for a lot of it, weren't they? Yes, they were. Or yeah. uh, I haven't seen the movie, but Thor, uh, Thor the, the latest Thor movie with uh, the CGI muscles for uh, Jane Foster as the Lady Thor. Right. I think the thing that detracts the surfing sequence to me is that it starts the film with a surfing sequence that was done for real. Yes. Mm. So you've set your quality bar with surfing the world's highest wave, <laughs> the most dangerous place. <laughs> And then you you fake it later. Like if they hadn't have done the opening sequence, I don't think it would look so bad. Well, James, as you said, the waves look great, but then the human in the in the CGI scenes look like a video game. And then you cut, you know, and then you juxtapose that with a real Pierce Brosnan. As I said earlier, he's working it. He's like really trying to make it sell you on it. <laughs> I, I, I felt sorry for Pierce Brosnan in that whole sequence. But damn it, he committed. <laughs> he did commit, yeah. Big time. You know what's funny is the immediate shot after that where he's like, you know, doing the <gasps> my shoulder and um like gathering his parachute up. That was shot as an insert shot in like a car park that they sprayed fake snow on and it had cardboard icebergs. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he went from like nineteen sixties tech in the you know, to VFX and back again within two shots. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, I just think that a lot of the CGI stuff, it's more about not having the forethought of how is this going to, how is this going to last? You know, <clears throat> especially considering the tradition around the Bond franchise of, of just doing, you know, practical work, do, you know, relying on stunts. And it was almost puzzling to me that, that they said, okay, Lee Tomahori, go ahead. Just, you know, cause he, I get the feeling that he kind of came in and he's like, but wait, dude, we should do this <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and just yeah. took it and just took it to comic book city. You know, yeah, yeah, well, the funny is the bond franchise is littered with stories of this is a great idea. And then everybody else shoots it down. Like, no, 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 no. We're not going to do that. And they avoid so many bad choices. And this was the, the one time. <laughs> you know, it's like the terrorists, right? And you need to win once. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just in our, uh, give and take just now, I do wonder if they hadn't stuck that CGI bullet in the gun barrel, would it have like lulled you to like, you know, as soon as they did that, that kind of put the audience up on guard, like, okay, yeah, what's like, going on? Yeah. Tamahori did it I, in his I, next film too. He did it in X, Triple X2, whatever that sequel was called, X Squared, whatever the hell, mm-hmm. um, where he did a full on car chase in CGI with Ice Cube, wasn't it? And it looked awful. Yeah. But when was the last time you saw that movie on the cable, right? I mean, right. to your point, they've got to go into these things, I think, thinking like 50 years from now, people will be watching this. Is this a, is this a smart choice to do something nobody's done before? Mm, maybe not. I, I, I think a lot of it, though, was them, it, it, I suppose some of it's their own hubris and them trying to say, oh, we can do the CGI, um, especially the stuff with the Antonov towards the end that's all mm-hmm. CGI for some bizarre reason when I can't figure out because surely a model doing that under a model and then putting hair dryer in front of it or something would have been much, they did much have cheaper. Models. They, they, they did have models of it, yeah. 
and then they still covered it with CGI anyway. Yeah. It's, it's bonkers. So yeah. some of it had to just be cockiness of them saying, well, we, we, we can do this, so we're going to do that. Just because you can, right? Doesn't mean you should. Right. <laughs> okay, so CGI side, what's your one with? Uh, I'll go. Um, okay, well, my unofficial one is, it's the one that's still more entertaining than Spectre. I just had to get, <laughs> I had to get that in there. <laughs> 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 um, but since we've already talked about CGI, I will say it's the one with Halle Berry. Um, mm. Just because I think she's phenomenal in this, and I think she brings so much to to this movie, you know, despite everything going against it. Um, and she has like a good. I like her chemistry with Pierce, and um, I'm trying to be silver lining here, <laughs> but. Cause, cause she is definitely the silver lining in this, in this movie for me. She just, um, even if there are moments where she kind of goes full camp, I kind of love it. I, I, and, and it helps Pierce along. Cause you can tell there's some scenes in this where Pierce is just sort of gritting, you know, his teeth trying to get through some of this, some of the silly, you know, dialogue that's in here. Um, but she just, I feel like she's a very steady point in a, in an otherwise very rocky, you know, sort of mm-hmm. movie. I think the performances actually all around are really good in this movie in general. I just think it's they're they're you know they're stuck in this giant ridiculous preposterous CGI world and and they're you know they're just sort of doing what they can to you know give some believability or you know <laughs> that sort of thing to it. <laughs> Something beyond a comic book character. Yes, yes. And the marketing machine really went in on Halle Berry. I mean, yeah, it helped that she won an Oscar, right, whilst they were filming this. That, I mean, that's got to be weird. You know, one minute you're in a, in a water tank trying to break out of a fake plastic ice palace, and, th- <laughs> th- and then you have your picture taken with your Oscar that you won. I mean. Well, it's got to be like kind of having a candy bar after you've, you know. After you've had a salad, you know, <laughs> like had this really nutritious salad, and you get an Oscar for it, and then you get to go eat a candy bar. <laughs> That's true, but the MGM really did market almost co co marketed Brosnan with Barry on this. Everything was there's that the double header almost. Um, well, the final poster wasn't it? The yeah. two of them with the a, a pistol with a silencer yeah. side by side. The mm-hmm. teaser was her gun, not his, with yeah. the Beretta. And Which from a wrong footed a lot of people. <laughs> from a writing perspective too, like that's a high point for me as well. Just the way that they wrote her as being so strong and being sort of this very capable, like it is sort of a dual starring sort of movie, the way that it's that she's portrayed in there. Alrighty. Sean, what you got for us? Um Well, I I I'll just add to that as well and just say that I think you're you're spot on and I like that. And um, I like that she she's she kind of makes it look really effortless. Um, like she hits the ground running straight away with this and takes it in her stride. And that poster of the double, I I love that. Um, yeah, do, do, I think she got a bit of a bad rap after this movie that she didn't mm-hmm. necessarily deserve. And she kind of she comes in and she finally makes good on that promise that every other Bond girl in every other interview has said where they've gone, oh, it's finally an equal for Bond. She's finally going to hold her own up against Bond. And finally, you do get someone who gets the sort of um, the legs and the character to be able to do that. Um, yeah. um, but I'm so I, I'm going to get it out of the way now and say I, I, I quite like this movie. And in fact, I love this movie and I'm really excited to go see it in the cinema. So I'm going to be a positive voice, but I also, I am willing to admit that this is quite a bad movie. Um, And I was thinking this over and I was thinking over, well, why is it actually bad? But I do love it. And I think that's drawn me to the tagline that it's the one with everything. And it is literally everything. And I think that is the problem with this film. I love it. I adore it. Absolutely. It's, it, Mm -hmm. it is, they literally do everything in overdrive all the time and it's fun and it's a great time. I've never watched this movie and had a bad time, but it is tiring. And by the end of it, you go, do you feel like you've got visual diabetes? Yes, (laughs) absolutely. It's those candy bars just keep coming. Yeah. 
Yeah. It is kind of my favorite train wreck of a movie. It's just, <laughs> I mean, it has a, it has a Star Trek holodeck in it. <laughs> I mean, that's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> they double well, down on everything. <laughs> well, it also has this, uh, anniversary overdose thing because I mean, stop and think about it. There was not a bond movie out for the 10th anniversary, nor the 20th, nor the 30th. So this was their first time to do a big anniversary movie on top of everything else. And there's a kind of where's Waldo feeling to it, where Mm -hmm. there's all these references. And after a while, it it kind of detracts from what's going on. I think there's a better movie in here that could have come out if it Mm -hmm. had been permitted Mm to. Reminds me what you said, Sean, of... um what Donald Pleasant says about playing Blofeld, which was um, perfection is not achieved when there's nothing left to add. It's when there's nothing left to remove. In other words, take something away until you get to the core. They went the other way on this, which is just like, oh, it's missing a cherry on top and chocolate sprinkles. It's like just keep mm-hmm. piling and piling and piling on the additives, right? <laughs> Rather than stripping it down to what it should be. And, Absolutely. And, and heaps of hot chocolate on top of it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and I guess the, the references, like I, some of them actually do land and do work really well, and they tend to be the really subtle ones. Mm. Um, my favorite out of them all is the floor in Gustav Graves' office, which is sort of a replica of the floor from Willard White's office in Diamonds yes. Are Forever. And that's, that mm. is a great, subtle little touch. But then it's all the other stuff like the Union Jack parachute, and it, it, you're just like, oh, my God, no. Just Sniffing ah, the shoe. We, we, we get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I still contend that that Union Jack shot would have been better had they not shown Bond landing in the plane first. Oh, it, yes. it, everything would have been better about that sequence. Everything would have been better if they had just <laughs> taken that out. That that sequence really irks me. A because of the Clash. I hate that song, and it's so it doesn't fit at all in this film. Um, but also, I don't get the point of that scene. And even as a kid, I never understood it. Because he's going to get knighted, and then he lands outside Buckingham Palace, and then he leaves. Yeah, and I don't, I, and I get that <laughs> oh, it's yeah. there to, it's there to be a big introduction, but then they introduce him again in the next scene when they, when he's in Blades, and I, I, I well, I, well, I just do not understand why it's there. That's because the first half is a semi adaptation of the Moonraker novel with Sir yeah. Hugo Drax, so. Because, of course, originally we were going to have Gala Brand and then the character was changed to Miranda Frost. So I suspect that's the reason. Well, we, t- we touched about that on a previous podcast, didn't we, James, when we were talking about... No, no, I think it was when we were talking about 007 Nightfire. And I think it wasn't mm. you that said that they it really interestingly, both Dine of the Day and 007 Nightfire were projects that started at the same time and they both started at the same place from the Moonraker novel. Yeah, they were both American novel remakes. Yeah, and they both diverged in different ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but creatively, they started at the same place, completely unknown to each other. Too. Mm-hmm. You know, the left hand not knowing what the right hand is doing is mm-hmm. not the first time. Right? <laughs> okay, Bond cocktail time. So, um, <laughs> to your point, Sean, all of these, right? All of them. <laughs> um, Pick one of these ingredients that you think is especially important, a twist, or is somehow unique to this particular film and why it can be positive or negative. We've got teaser titles, plot, women, villains, allies, Bond himself, action locations, dialogue, and style. Who wants to pick one of those ingredients for Diet of the Day? Can I pick one? Mm -hmm. Um, Titles with Bond being tortured. Yes, we still had, um, well, we had the ice women and we had the hot women but uh here we're seeing bond tortured in the middle of all this and that was a that was considerably different that certainly caught my attention wa- watching it first run in in uh, 2002 scorpion girl <laughs> yes which in the commentary track um tom hori talks about it said his son was like really intrigued by her yeah i'm sure her outfit was also designed by tom hori <laughs> probably <laughs> given what he was wearing when he was arrested subsequent to this movie coming out. Notes will be in the comments if your kids are listening. (laughs) 
Um, but then they would also use that storytelling technique, right, Bill, in Casino Royale, because then uh, Kleinman would do it again, wouldn't he? Although with the rotoscope thing, one of my favorite Easter eggs in Casino Royale is like you see Bond killing the people he kills in the film in the in the title sequence. That's right, but but this this one did it first. Yeah, not not as well, but you know, yeah, good stuff. Uh, ben, what would you like to throw in? Um, I kind of used a lot of what I was going to say earlier um about about Halle Berry and just women in general so I think I'm gonna go with my second choice which was Bond um because I think just in general again I'm gonna try and play silver linings here um (laughs) I just think Pierce Brosnan still does such a phenomenal job he looks the business he clearly knows that this movie is pretty much ridiculous and yet he's fully committed in every single scene He's, he's, you know, he's doing stunts, he's doing fight choreography and acting wise, even, you know, at times just going full camp with it, you know, knowing Mm. that, you know, some of these, (laughs) I think especially about those lines when Bond first meets Jinx (laughs) and the lines are just, I I just don't know how he kept a straight face (laughs) with some of those lines. (laughs) Um, But he's so good in the whole thing. I, I think, I always think about the moment when, he waltzes into that uh, that hotel in Hong Kong, soaking mm. soaking wet. Right after he escapes the uh, um, the little sick bay that he's in, and um, and he's still wearing pajamas, soaking wet. And he just walks in. He just still looks like an absolute badass. Just like has the gravitas to just walk right in. And and um, and then he's. I also really like him in the uh, in the pre-title sequence because at that point too. Um, the movie hadn't gone so fantastical. It felt more like a Bond movie then. And, and you know, just doing that, like mm-hmm. he was bossing that as well. And, and um, yeah, and even though, he, like I said, even though he's stuck saying things like Saved by the Bell, um, <laughs> you know, he, he still manages to, to kind of pull it off. So. Can I just reinforce something Ben just said? In that Hong Kong sequence when um, Bond you know, tells the Chinese he knows he's, you know, they're, they've been observing him. You know, the one Chinese agent says, Hong Kong is not ours now, Bond. And he says, don't worry, I'm not here to take it back. And he sounds, <laughs> and he sounds like, yeah, if I, but if I if wanted, wanted I to, would. yeah. 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 <laughs> it's good stuff. And, and funnily enough, that's all harking back to like what Tomorrow Never Dies was originally going to be about, right? It's- in 97 handover and everything. So it's like Purvis and Wade squeezing some stuff back in there. Um, yeah. Unused Bond stuff being referenced. I feel like a lot of stuff that Purvis and Wade had um, just sort of got manipulated into something so fantastical and, and yeah. got lost in the mix. <laughs> we have not yet mentioned the invisible car. So <laughs> <laughs> 23 minutes in. Um <laughs> We've interviewed Purpose and Wade several times. I want to defend them a lot on this film because Tamahori did bastardize a few of their ideas and take them too far. That adaptive camouflage was actually a real thing, but it wasn't anything like it was in the movie. It was a very crude technology, like to kind of disguise tanks on a hillside. It wasn't to be used close up or anything. Um, but then, of course, you know, the director gets involved, the VFX department. Before you know it, it's an invisible car. <laughs> So, I, I I gotta ask: Does the yeah. invisible car actually bother you guys? Only in the way it was executed. It, as James implied just now, you know, there was technology along that line, but it it became more like magic. The yeah, way the rubber and the moving. wheels don't go invisible, right? You know, that's not how that works. Um, I do like Purvis and Wade's joke about there's always been invisible cars in every Bond movie. You just haven't seen them before. I think that's a lovely way of just taking the sting out of that criticism. Um, but of all the movies since, um, I think the invisible car isn't so much a problem. It's more of a marker because that is the point in the film <laughs> where it all goes downhill for a lot of people is that cue scene where the invisible car pops up. That's like the, that's the post in the ground that says, all right, I'm out. Um, 
and a very distinguished Bond fan slash author who remain nameless to protect his identity did at the premiere say 35 minutes in to his seat next to him man this could be one of the best Bond films well I, I and gonna... his mind was changed five minutes later <laughs> well I was going to say that um, I think a more serious criticism is like going back to Goldfinger okay the DB5 was amazing as but eventually fails Bond because he's fooled and he drives it into the wall and it's never right. heard from again. But here in this movie, it eventually, you know, there's a temporary failure in the, in the tech, but then it revives and it still saves him. And that kind of detracts from bond, you know, like bond should get out of it, get out of the situation himself. But mm. he, he needs the, this the invisible car once the, the the tech revives to get out of the situation. Yeah, I I'm gonna I'm gonna argue with you on that, Bill, because it said it was re it was being repaired, and he planned to get to that point and reverse up that hill to trick him. So I think Bond used that fact that it was broken and going to fix itself. So I think Bond's ingenuity was still there for that plan to work. Maybe, but it's not as obvious as right. Elsewhere, well, I, as in other films, I, I think maybe yeah. it, it, that sort of comes down to scripting and uh, coming back to mm -hmm. what your defense of Purvis and Wade, James, was that uh, all the that end sort of la latter end of the car chase where they're charging to the ice palace was added very late in the day by Tamahori when he saw the set, and so the set had already been constructed and they'd already filmed some scenes when he turned around and said, "Well, we should have a car chase through here, and that's where we'll bring back the invisibility." Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, think, I I wonder if that's why it's not as neat as it could have been. Right. Well, well also, Sean, uh, just again, reinforcing your point. So what you described, apparently they had to do some like reconstruction, had to like, <laughs> had to like reinforce some things so, so <laughs> that the, the car could actually go up a ramp because originally it had not been constructed to do that. <laughs> so which added to costs and so forth. Funny enough, the car doesn't bother me that much. I don't know why. I just kind of <laughs> that one. I just kind of <laughs> rolled with. For me, for me, it was the uh, the Nintendo uh, Power Glove. That one. Right. <laughs> that Robo one. The Robocop suit. <laughs> yeah, that one bothered me. And then the giant, you know, laser that was associated with it, um, yeah. or not really a laser. It's a you know sun. Uh, redirected the, sunshine or, or what? I guess but. you would call it an exoskeleton. Yes. Um, yeah. Which was right. like by Bond standards in twenty in two thousand two was like kind of out there. Um, I think we interviewed Raymond Benson before this movie came out about his books, which was still ongoing at the time. And in his books, well, I can't remember which one it is. Um, I think it might be the. Anyway, um, he drives a Jaguar and it's got self-healing bullet holes. It changes color and it has a drone that flies ahead of himself to see what's coming up on the road. And in the late nineties, all of those three things were fantastical. And he said, he spoke to an R and D person at the company or some other expert and said, well, we can't do these things yet, but we expect sometime in the future that they might be plausible. All three of those things have become plausible. <laughs> especially the drone part. So I, I just can't, I just can't see the, the invisible car getting to that stage though. They were on the drawing board, I think was the implication. Yeah. I, I think I read the same interview that you saw. Yeah. I think those books were a couple of years before this, weren't they? Is it like, yes. it's one, yes. it's one of the latter ones. Yeah. 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 I don't know. They all blend into one high time to kill. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it was the anyway. It, it, um, my point being is like that's where Purvis and Wade were coming from. Mm. With this, this is plausible technology. It's on the, as you say, it's on the drawing board, and then the creative team behind the film took that and just went wild with it. Well, <clears throat> today, well, actually, yesterday, as we record this, I went to a Toyota event, and they were describing how they were doing research, how. Um, uh, there's tech that can anticipate whether the driver will have a heart attack. 
involves sensors in the seat and you know in-car cameras and like okay well this is this is what they're researching right now today as we record this Mm -hmm. so so i guess what benson was talking about was stuff they were they were researching you know 22 years ago the car contacts your insurance company and cancels your life insurance just before you have your heart attack. <laughs> that's where that's what, going. That's, that's where that's going. What, that's not what Toyota told me, but like, yeah, but probably, yeah, that's probably what it'll be used for. Um, Sean, what ingredient would you like to put? Well, I, I, I'm just saying that I, the, sorry, the reason I asked that is that I, I do find it really interesting because as a, as a kid at the time, obviously the car didn't bother me because I was seven. So I thought it was really cool. But I've always felt like it was more of just of a headline thing. And I've always wondered why, and I don't know, it's a wider question than we can talk about, but why the invisible car kind of is the one that's too far? Why the submarine car gets a pass and smart blood even kind of gets a pass? Like, why is the invisible car that little bit that takes it into sci-fi? And I'm, I've always, always sat with me. Some, I'm, someone might know better than me, but I don't know. Mm. Um, in terms of my pick, anyway, I, I, I could easily talk about all of these. Um, <laughs> there is everything. Um, but the, I think I'll go with what is probably the best part of the film for me, and that's action. Um, and in particularly, a lot of the chases and a lot of the second unit director's stuff. Um, yeah. especially especially the car chase, which I think is one of the best car chases in all of Bond. Um, and it's just all really technically impressive and filmed really, really well. Um, the surf sequence at the start, there's some amazing um, helicopter shots and there's some behind-the-scenes footage of the how close the helicopter got to the wave. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's stuff that when you look at it, you think, actually, that's really impressive that they've achieved that. And we kind of take it for granted watching the film because of all the CGI stuff that comes in later. Um, but there's some really, really good, technically impressive action shots and action sequences that I don't think we've had matched since, but um, in the way that they're filmed at least anyway. Right. No, I'd agree with that. The, the car chase is even more impressive. If you, if you ever get to see the Vic Armstrong cut of the car chase, cause he was not, I don't want to speak out of turn here. I don't think he was too happy with how it was cut in the final film. <laughs> so he has his own cut of that car chase where it doesn't interleave back to Jinx trying to break the door open with the key of the door or whatever it is and all that other kind of stuff. And it's far, the, the tension's far better. It, it, it's, I think it's just, it's brilliant. And it's, it's kind of reminds me of watching like dance in a way. It's perfectly choreographed. The two cars do sort of slide around on the ice. Um, I was watching the behind the scenes DVD thing in the prep to this. Um, and it, something they said was that they had the tires with the spikes made so it could grip onto the ice. Mm-hmm. The ice had to be 24 inches thick for them to be able to drive on it and do the spins and stuff that they needed to. But the tires melting. that they had made, yeah, it was melting. And the tires they had made were gripping too hard. So they actually just had to re- revert back to the original tires. So it's all just done on normal tires. And it's just, there's just some really I don't I don't drive but it's impressive driving to me. Um, I think it's all it all really impresses me. Well, in fact, I would say it's uh, it'd be fair to say this may be Vic Armstrong's best work as a second yes. director. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And um, unfortunately, it was his last for the Bond series. And and also. Uh, I think this is also Arthur Wooster's last contribution to the series as well. He was not the full second unit director, but he did do some sequences and he was a valued uh, contributor starting in the early eighties. So this was his farewell as well. Yeah. And two points, Sean, about the action. I love the hovercraft chase. I don't care what anybody says. I I think it's great. That's one of my favorite parts in the whole movie. I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. It's again spoiled by insert shots and um, green screen, you know. Yeah. Um, Bad guy guns. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, didn't was that where Brosnan did his knee in for this movie? Yeah, well, that was yeah running in front of the sport the right. supercars, yeah, mm-hmm. in the mud. Yeah. I think that there's something else that's not talked about enough. It's, it, it was very kind of clearly publicized when Spectre came out that Daniel Craig couldn't run because he'd done his knee in, and that's why he's kind of a bit slow and sluggish. But Pierce Brosnan still did all this with a knee injury as well. 
Yeah. I think it was down for like five five days or something like that. Yeah. It was very little time. I do remember reading it was like the first time that they'd ever had to do That's that right. type of interruption. Yeah. So we've mentioned Halle Berry. Um, but underappreciated elements. What thing, big or very small, would you like to bring to people's attention that they might like to look out for next time they watch Die Another Day? The whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good lead into uh, Rosamund Pike, actually. Ah, I think yeah. I think she's phenomenal um, in this, and especially considering that she basically stepped on set with like no experience whatsoever, and she comes off really, really well. Just like totally convincing double agent. I I I thought that that would be a underappreciated element for sure. And and she's only twenty in this. Is that right? She's she's very very young, and she's holding up acting cho- like she's really standing around. You notice her in scenes; she doesn't blend into the background. In yeah. any yeah, scene she was twenty. She was twenty three, same age as me at the time this came mm. out. Um, right, and and she, she just finished a orig- degree or something. Mm. Right, and she was originally supposed to play Gala Brand, and then it was changed to Miranda Frost. Yeah, which gives you an idea of how much in flux the script was. The only thing that disappoints me about Rosamund Pike is she did join the Jane Seymour school of, um, that was a terrible mistake for my career and I don't like James Bond and I don't talk about it for a bit. Oh, But she has come around in recent years to actually talk fondly about it and the fact that, yeah, it was actually the best thing for her career at the time to get that kind of publicity. But, but then Jane, the, the, Jane Seymour's still in the I hate it camp and I wish I'd never done it. <laughs> But I'll go to all the parties and turn up at all the events. <laughs> <laughs> with with all the reviews and the way this movie is kind of picked apart, you can, I kind of can't blame her to be honest. Um, yeah. Like it, it, it is very the whole movie, but it is very unfairly kind of criticised on. I think there was a lot of press attention at the time as well that probably didn't help. Yeah, isn't Gemma Arderon part of that club too? Yes. Yeah, she doesn't. Um, talk fondly of Bond either. No. Mm. But again, probably owes a credit to it. Yeah. Ben, would you like an underappreciated element? Sure. Um, I think, um, I kind of want to say David Arnold's score. Um, mm. Yes. Just because I feel like, maybe this is me showing my age just a little bit, but like, I don't mind the electronic-y elements in it, and I really like the Paul Oakenfold james bond remix in it um and i remember i can't remember if it was last episode or the one before that where um joe darlington was talking about how how lucky we are to have or to yeah. have had or to have had david arnold sort of as this as this steward for a little while where he just really helped kind of sew things together where you know maybe there were some weaknesses in the you know, in the plot or, or just the, the, you know, the vibe of the movie at that mm. specific scene or whatnot, this sort of helps carry you through. Um, cause I do think that, that the, um, this is kind of a, like a decent, I'll listen to this in my car. It's not mm-hmm. bad. It's, yeah. it's brilliant. I, I'd argue it's one of, if not his best Bond score, to be honest. Um, Especially, have you got the La La Land release, Ben? Um, it's it's kind of, an, I think it's all the music from the movie, so it's kind of extended out a little bit. Um, oh, nice. But I listen to it. It's one I go back to a lot, like when I'm in the gym in particular. Um, so it's great, like, it's because it's got that energy. It's really, and there's a huge, the orchestra feels huge. The brass section feels really sort of on point. Um, mm-hmm. but there are, there are genuinely moments where I listen to it and it, it's kind of get, it grabs my attention whenever I, I'm doing something, I'm in the middle of something, um, all my focus goes to it, particularly the sequence from Cuba when everything's blown up and the helicopter's taking off. Right. Um, yes. It's just wonderful music that, and you're right. It, it kind of makes up for some of the film's other shortcomings and that it just, elevates everything it's big and it's impressive and it's the one element where arnold has clearly thrown everything at it and it's the one part of the film where that actually really really works yeah Hmm. can i go for an underrated thing 
Um, this will be controversial. I think the title song is fine. I don't like the end title version of the song, but but given the way the title song works with Bond getting tortured, I think works okay. Not great, but it's fine. Um, I would have preferred had Ar- Arnold had had proposed an overture for the end titles, which you know that encompassed all the various tunes of the of the score. And Tamori said, "Well, no." I, I want this alternate version of Madonna's song, but uh, you know, that's the it, that's the, it, the the end title one is the Dirty Vegas mix, isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I, rem- yeah I remember I that being on the CD single at the time. <laughs> yeah, and 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 Tom Ahori and his uh, commentary track, you know, talked about the choices he had. He wanted to go with that, like, yeah, not not so great, but the main titles, it's okay, it works. I was going to say, Bill, for mine to appreciate them, I was going to throw in Madonna's song. It's aged well. It's a banger now. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. the one you hear late at night in places. It's You won't hear another Bond song at 2 a.m. in a club, but you'll hear Dino the Day. Um, and, and it works with uh, the the visuals of the main yeah. yeah, Yeah. And Madonna actually wrote it. If The album that that was included in is actually, there's a storyline that goes through her songs on that album, and it and in the context of her album, it works. And I know that they made her rewrite some stuff when they, she first submitted it um, to bring it more in line with the movie. Um, so there's another version of it somewhere. <laughs> um, <laughs> the original version of it, which may be different, but I do remember when this, this was the first Bond song that I remember leaking and some radio station, I think in the States had it early and they only had like three quarters of it or something and they played it and um and it you know people recorded it went on their web and everything way before the sun came out and i remember one very well-known bond fan in the community at the time saying i think it's all right but i'll wait for the version where they don't have the stopping of the music in it it's like uh i think that's deliberate dude <laughs> well uh- I remember actually I was in a bookstore and they were playing that song and this was before the movie came out. So yeah, like, yeah. It's, it's, I remember that, uh, I probably wasn't, maybe it'd been a bit later. There was a sort of ITV special and they did them all the time where they were ranking the Bond songs. And I think it's floating yeah. around on YouTube and they did a, a poll during that. And I can, I've always remembered this, that they interviewed people from different age groups. And interestingly, people from the younger age group at the time voted this as the top Bond song. Right. Yeah. Wow. And those people <laughs> then are now my age now. <laughs> And does it still so, sit at the top of your list, James? No, it's pretty high up there. Yeah. But I understand why people hated it. Well, you know, it also I, would, back, like, I would say this. These are the same people who hated You Know My Name the first time they heard it. Yeah. yeah. It was the but same the, voices, the same We Saw Goldfinger in the Theatre voices, saying that that's a garage band and what the hell are they doing, you know, when Chris Cornell was announced. So, mm-hmm. you know, not everybody's opinion is equal. There's a lot of that with this film, in a way, in that it's quite an experimental song for Bond. It's new territory, and there's, I think that's kind of a running theme throughout the whole movie, of, like we said, with CGI, but also with, um, there's there's some of that in the score. Arnold said uh, there's an interview with him somewhere where they recorded some of it phonetically backwards and then played it forwards in the yeah, film. Yeah, the satellite is, oh boy, that's a big umbrella. Hmm. Or something and, sung chorally and then reversed. But yeah, there's stuff like and there's stuff like that in the visuals in the editing as well. Um, with all the, the what they class and they say in all the behind the scenes features, music video style editing, which is a term that's aged horribly. Yeah. Um, but but really, when you look at it, it's exactly the same stuff that Peter Hunt was doing in the '60s. All the speed ramping and stuff. It, 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 if if he was directing Dine of the Day, there's no doubt in my mind that he'd be using the same kind of um, experimental it's really, tools. It's a really good call, Sean. It's a really good call. Well, nobody's mentioned the slow motion yet in this movie, but um, the speed well, ramping yeah, does, yeah. hasn't it hasn't aged well, has it? No, it hasn't. <laughs> it's, it's a, as an editor, it's one of my biggest pet peeves of the movie. Actually, there's a moment where they're in. God, what is it that that control room or whatever? And there's a shot that's sort of 
Is it Zal's leather jacket? It might. I don't know if it's trench, his leather, tre- his leather <laughs> trench coat, and he flicks it around, and it's mm. like speed ramp. Well, there's another one too, where it curves around, and all it is is they're all just looking at a computer screen. And I'm like, why did you have to speed ramp that? There's no re- like, we need more energy here. Speed ramp it. There's just no need for that. Can you imagine that in uh, in uh, No Time to Die when they're all looking at the computer screens when Bond's dying? Spoiler alert. And like Tanner's looking sad into the webcam. It's like speed ramp. <laughs> do, do you know what? I'm going to say it and I'm going to say it right now. If Spectre had speed ramping in it, it would be a better movie. <laughs> like all through the fourth act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah maybe, maybe they could have cut five minutes out. <laughs> They'd have to put a lot of speed ramping in that car chase. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> just, just imagine though, when Bond confronts uh, Blofeld Oberhauser and they talk about his, he's been his half brother and he goes, we know how to push buttons and then you get a speed ramp to him sort of slamming down on that button. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, Somebody out there is going to do this and put it on Twitter. Please do. Please. I, I, awesome. I might. Fan <laughs> <laughs> edits coming to YouTube real soon. It'd be great. You know, and, and, you know, ciao, Mickey Mouse. And then, whoa, speed round. <laughs> <laughs> More editing time in front of my computer. Uh, Excellent. <laughs> Bossman's holiday. All but, right. But, uh, sorry, but sorry, just to ask on that, Ben. While you may hate it, do you kind of commend them from at least trying something new? Um, I mean, <laughs> it's. I just think it's overused. I, I think they abuse the heck out of it in this movie. You know, they they try all of these speed changes just because they can, and it's just so overdone. It's just like too many. Um. But I think I think it's just I think it's more of a criticism in general, of just the post in general, because there's a lot of bad color grading in it too. For yes. me, uh, yeah. I mean, you can be experimental, but I I just feel like they went so far with it. Well, with color, they specifically made the pre-title sequence and the whole Korean sequence much darker, and then suddenly when you get to Hong Kong, the colors are so much brighter. That was a deliberate choice by uh tamahori and so on the the second version of hawaii 50 they had this thing where the new mcgarrett gets tricked going to uh north korea and like all the sequences in north korea are dark just like they are in die another day it's like i'm i was watching this like you're stealing from Die Another Day. What the hell are you guys yeah, doing? Yeah, but you know, my theory on this, Bill, is if you're going to steal something from a Bond movie, steal it from one that people generally don't like because then nobody will notice. And clearly they did not. So, like, I, but, but I did. So, like, ah, uh, I was rolling my eyes the whole time. So. There you go. It's interesting though. Why does it, because you guys are right, it does, it's really, I hate the North Korea sequence, the the color grade and that, and simply because they've just taken the saturation slider down. They've not even really recorrected it. They've just gone, no saturation, take that right down. But why does it not work for Dine of the Day, but it's applauded for Casino Royale? What is, why does it, it is, there's, there's something and there's obviously one little key element that just makes such a big difference. And I don't know what it is. Helps to have a good story. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also a lazy critique, right? People generally really highly rate Casino Royale, so everything they did was the great decision. People generally don't like Dino of the Day. Every decision they made was terrible. I mean, it's... Mm. Yeah. But picking the individual elements out independently, it's very hard to judge them, you know, without the context they're in. But I think you're right, Sean. There's some stuff in here which they did. I mean, even like we talked about the... Uh, going to the bold choice of the title song. It's like, well, <laughs> unless you roll the dice, right? You're never going to know. Nobody, nobody needs 25 songs by Shirley Bassey, right? Um, I honestly so, yeah. wish they would have taken it even further. Like, <laughs> like, there's part of me that wants this movie to be full camp, just hit, <laughs> like just Dutch angle everything and just... <laughs> Just go full yeah. 60s Batman. Just, that, well, yeah, with, with, with like green and purple gas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Having watched a few episodes of Batman here in the last week. uh, (laughs) Awesome. Trivia. 
have you got a fact or tidbit about the film that you find particularly interesting? I found a silly one. Um, right. The uh, <clears throat> the original cocktail that Bond was supposed to offer Jinx when she came out of the water was actually called a Kanchanchara, but Brosnan wasn't a fan of the name. <laughs> I, I guess according to Neil Wade, Brosnan said, can I just say Mojito? Canchero, Mojito? Canchanchara. <laughs> Mojito Canchanchero sounds like dog food. Apparently, that's so allegedly that's what Brosnan said. So, and his question was, "Can I say Mojito?" And the answer was, "No, you can't." <laughs> so Mojito wins out, but no one in the prop department had a recipe for it. But Tomahori had just been wearing a T-shirt with a recipe for a Mojito on it the day before. Oh no! And they literally used the recipe off his shirt for it. Wow, that's amazing. <laughs> Wait, no one had the recipe, but they were filming in an actual bar, weren't they? Yeah. So, oh, God. In Spain, so, though, not so in somewhere, Cuba. Yeah, but somewhere there was a barman, like, stood outside the set watching them make that mojito and being like, oh, my God. Oh, no. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> yeah, that's the big problem with this film. <laughs> for him, for him, that's the problem with this film. So, 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 fun story. Whenever uh, my whenever my partner now has a mojito, she likes mojitos. Whenever she has one, anyway, I do. I will, no matter where she is, even if she's like at the other end of somewhere, <laughs> I will just shout mojito. And she, she, it's got to the point where she found it funny because she she she's seen this film, so she she originally found it funny. Now she just gets really aggravated every time. <laughs> and it's not going to stop you. Never going to stop me. Well. Um... I'll toss in uh, some trivia. So like some Bond friends of mine who were like online at the time actually praised this movie and like they were giving it three and a half stars and I gave it two and a half. I said, I'm sorry, I'm just exhausted after having seen this. And like, so like immediately after the film came out, there were like a lot of hardcore Bond fans saying, this is great. And then like, they had a few weeks to think it over and suddenly like they didn't like it as much, but uh, this is a case yeah. where I, I think bond fans can be a little fickle and this is anecdotal evidence only, but like, I think that happened with this film. I yeah. think there's a lot of revisionist history with this film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this the other day, actually, Bill, and um, you're spot on. It's kind of like hindsight's twenty twenty, but we we, I guess, selectively forget that the movie did really well. It box office like gross really well. well. Yeah, mm -hmm. and there, and there's all this talk that Die Another Day was the reason we had to reboot. That was the line that comes up that came from Eon allegedly that that did we'd gone right. too far with Die Another Day, so we had to reboot. But immediately after, the Bond as a franchise kept on this direction and it did for a couple of years yep. because you get yep. two years later you get 007 Everything or Nothing, the video game, which yeah. is very much an extension of oh, Die yeah. Another Day. Yeah. You know what I, I would have to go back and look, but I believe that Die Another Day in the United States only was like the number one movie for like three weeks in a row. They did phenomenally well, phenomenally yeah. well. So, you know? like, so anyone says, "Oh, this was terrible," and they had to redo it. Like, that's revisionist you know, history. When Michael G. Wilson thought Moonraker went too far, they didn't fire Roger Moore. No, and and and, mm -hmm. and, and when so license peel back when, another layer to find the truth, right? And when License to Kill didn't do so well in the U.S., they didn't fire Michael G. Wilson. They fired Richard Maybaum and John right. Glenn. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Truth of it is, Brosnan wanted too much money. I think he wanted 30, 23 million or 30 million. I can't remember what it was. Um, I want to say 25 million, but yeah, yeah. The, the same range. Yeah. yeah. So, so was That's he offered like, Casino Royale? No. Or would it, would um, it have just been a, a, a fifth film that was carrying It would have been on? a fifth film, but he wanted too much money. Yeah. Just pay him. <laughs> Sean, what you got for us trivia-wise? Trivia-wise, uh, really tiny things, little things, because I think a lot of this film's really well documented anyway. Um, my first one is touching back on the score, David Arnold, um, the sequence where Bond stops his heart um, mm. and then he wakes back up. Um, not only is um, in there one of the, the people that he 
I don't know what the word is for it, but it gets with the defibrillator that he shocks is Paul Darrow from Blade yes. 7 fame. Avon. Yes. And one of the best shots of science fiction of all time. <laughs> and he's literally just <laughs> the back of his head and he gets defibrillated by Piers Brosnan. Um, but in the score in there, there's also when you listen to it and if you can listen back, it, I think it's on the soundtrack. Um, the original gun barrel for Dr. No is hidden in there. And that's another reference mm-hmm. that I think actually works really well. So that's that sort of um, sci-fi, high-pitched, whistly kind of thing is is in that bit of the track, which I love. Yeah. Um, and mm. then there was another bit of trivia, which I found today, again, watching the behind-the-scenes stuff, and I never noticed this uh, really, really tiny thing when Halle Berry does her Ursula Andress tribute and comes out of the ocean. Um, the knife belt that she's wearing um, has a belt buckle on it, and the belt buckle is in the shape of a J for Jinx. And I've never noticed that oh. before. Ah, very nice. Um, my piece of trivia was they built an AstroTurf golf course behind the Ice Palace. <laughs> <laughs> Who for? But for graves, but they cut it from the film. Oh, so it was actually you don't meant to see be there. it. Yeah, you don't see it. It's in some of the behind-the-scenes photos. Ah. But yeah, I think that would have added a Trumpian quality to Gustav Graves. <laughs> Well, also, real quick uh, trivia, like, so Ford Motor Company, which had not been in the Bond movies for a number of years, came back for this one, but it was mostly to promote what their European brands they owned at the time, which included Jaguar, Land Rover, etc. The Thunderbird. Well, the Thunderbird Mm. was the one Ford brand car in the whole movie, but uh, yeah, and they owned Aston Martin at the time as well. Um, supposedly they spent $35 million in related marketing expenses. And I talked to the president of Ford at the time, in the early 2000s. He was a Brit. He said, we got our money's worth. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he, he refused to confirm the $35 million figure, but uh, yeah, he yeah. said it was worth it. So my favorite anecdote in this whole film is Rick Yoon said that you know that scene where they're escaping the clinic and um, Bond, you know, Bond uses the fire extinguisher to blow a hole in the wall. And mm-hmm. there's that tracking shot of Rick Yoon running a Zao um, towards the helicopter. Um, <laughs> he, he was asking Director Lee Tamahori like, what his motivation was in the scene. And Tamahori told him, just imagine Michael Jackson's chasing you. <laughs> 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 Uh, that's not aged well, and I don't think you'll find that in any official book or DVD. <laughs> All right, final verdict. There are no bad James Bond films, but there are some we like more than others. Um, would you like to put Dino the Day in your top tier, middle tier, or bottom tier, and why? Uh, I'll volunteer lower tier, but it doesn't mean I don't enjoy it, because I do. I can overlook the the flaws that i've mentioned before but uh it's it's a fun movie all right one vote for lower tier uh ben what are you feeling um i'm thinking i don't know i i'm struggle with this one because it is a guilty pleasure movie mm-hmm. i do think it's probably at the very top of the bottom tier <laughs> um <laughs> it's just because it is fun to watch it's just, but I also am, you know, <laughs> I am aware it's not a, not a good quote unquote movie, but there's a lot of fun to be had in this. I, and I can think of at least four other Bond movies, which I will not name, that I would, that I would want, you know, I'd want to watch this before I'd watch those. Mm. So, how about um, this honorable mention for the middle tier? <laughs> or is yeah. that? Is that too much of a stretch? <laughs> no, no, it, it it might it might graduate into middle tier. I mean, mm-hmm. as I'm going through all these, because we'll I've been see watching how Craig is uh, age, right? Yeah. Sean, oh, I hate this. There's a reason so I invited you on this one. Uh, uh, right, <laughs> right. So I'm going to get everything out on the table. Sparkling um, personality. Oh, well, thank you very much. Um. Obviously, I have a lot of nostalgia for this. I was seven when this came out. It was my first Bond in the cinema. Uh, I remember the relief of finding out it was a 12A and not a straight 12. Yes, I can go. 
Um, <laughs> and it, 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 as a seven-year-old, it's the best film ever, I can confirm. Um, I also have a really wonderful memory of when I saw it, and I saw it my late grandmother was with us, um, and she would have been pushing 80 at the time, and she, no joke, spent the entire film with her fingers in her ears going, it's too loud! And I think that sums up the film perfectly. <laughs> I, I, I adore Brosnan and I adore the style and I love it when sequels, particularly franchise films, do roll the dice and do something different, even if it's not successful. I'd rather have that than a, something that's boring and formulaic any day. I'm aware that the, the story and the script might as well not be there. It is, it's too long and bloated. Um, you could do a rewrite of this movie and chop half an hour out and it'd be so much better. Also, there is also there are sequences in this film that could be great Bond films on their own, like Bond mm. and uh, uh, Bond and Ronson doing a Die Hard through MI6 while it's being taken over. Like, there's a film I really <laughs> want to see. So I'm aware it's really bad, but I really, really bloody love it. And if yeah. you took me in a cinema and you said to me, Casino Royale's showing in that one, Die Another Day showing in that one, I'm going in Die Another Day. I've never watched this movie and had a bad time. I've never, it's just, it's fun and it's easy and it is everything I want from a James Bond movie. So it, I can, I could easily put it in the bottom tier, but honestly, I could justify putting it in the top tier as well. Um, so I, I don't know. And maybe some of it's that. Your personal ranking, it's, your personal, it's your personal ranking. Well, in that case, then I'm going to go better both worlds and I'm going to slap bang in the middle. Ah, oh, okay. That's what I'm going to I was, I, really, I, I pull, I was really pulling for this film. I was really pulling um, for it. I was like, Sean's going to put it in the top. I'm sorry, James, but the, the, the problem right. is that would keep it from the top is the fact that tomorrow never dies and the world is not enough would yeah. go in there. I think right. they're just an mm-hmm. inch better and inch more entertaining um but i'd honestly always always have a good time with this movie okay. i i know i will defend it i will absolutely defend it to anyone that wants to have a go at another day come at me because but and i'm gonna i'm gonna regret saying that <laughs> good stuff um is this a genuine is this like a general shared experience that when you're a kid like you know you said you're seven years old sean but you know you're, you're mm-hmm. seven eight nine ten or something and you're sitting and then your family's over and maybe your grandma or your auntie's there and you're watching something on tv and then there's a sex scene and it's really fucking awkward <laughs> i know what you're gonna say i know what you're gonna well, say imagine sitting in the, the world premiere and then jinx starts grinding on bond and you know the queen is like within 50 feet of you <laughs> like that's awkward <laughs> that's the Did first thing i'll think about when any news of the queen breaks is that moment <laughs> i had that shared experience with about three thousand people i wonder what she thought of the scene of money penny yeah uh, you know she herself. loved this film oh. she absolutely loved it because the next day there was an event i think at man united with alex ferguson or something and she was talking and the, the press kind of overheard stuff and she asked everybody at that day have you seen a new bond film yet it's great she absolutely loved oh. this film and i think that's amazing <laughs> <laughs> well, well that's great you know if, if it was good if, if the queen puts it in a top tier then yeah top tier queenie you know top tier queenie on that note, uh, go see this film on the big screen if you haven't seen it on the big screen. Um, it's worth seeing. It's a roller coaster mm-hmm. ride. And, um, you know, just just imagine yourself sitting next to the Queen when that yeah. scene comes up. That's good. Remember, remember here, here in the US, we're not going to get to see it on the big screen. So no. if you're in the UK, you go see it. When you US, the US also didn't get that sequence properly either. Yeah, that sex scene was cut from the US release. Really? Yeah, so, I heard that. Yeah, yes. I heard about that. <gasps> yeah. yeah, they did not get full cringe. Um, oh. <laughs> so they didn't even get to see any of the kiwi stuff. Is it kiwi? Is it a lime? I don't know. I think it was. Uh, well, we saw. It was some a fig. It. it was a fig. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. No, I'm. I'm so. I'm excited to see it in the cinema. And also, it's a bank holiday here in the UK. So make cinema dine of the day your bank holiday bond. You yeah. can't ask for better, can you? All right. Very much so. Good stuff, guys. Thank you very much, Bill, Ben, and Sean. And next week, from the from the ridiculous to the sublime, we're doing Casino Royale. <laughs> <laughs>
Bye for now. Bye.